And now also a preamble that will be recorded. Two things in the preamble. First, I wanted to also follow Oren in saying a little bit more about ways to listen to a talk. I want to just add one piece, which is that we actually can practice. In other words, be directing our awareness as we listen. The most simple way to do this is to stay connected to the body in some way. Even just to feel the hands. So it's really, again, following up on what Oren was suggesting to let the talk as it were, come into your whole being, not uh, so much mainly cognitively. And so just some connection staying with the body. Some people would just can actually be with the breath as you listen. And there can be a, a deep taking in of what is resonant in the talk. And I also wanted to uh, acknowledge that it's uh, today is my father's birthday. <laughs> and uh, his name uh, is Simon. He died a little over 10 years ago. And so he, Dara and I were talking, and so he was born two years before Dara's mother. And the date was one day later. So. He uh, got interested in meditation. He was um, a scientist. More I could say, but he, he was very interested in meditation. The last 25 or so years of his life, we meditated together. I got him this really, really wonderful red Zafu, which is now in my home. Today I want to explore further the nature of mindfulness and we'll also continue with that exploration uh, tomorrow in the talk. And I want to focus on what's called the second foundation of mindfulness, which is mindfulness of Vedana in the Pali, or feeling tone. So that'll be the, the focus uh, this evening, and then also in uh, the instructions tomorrow morning. I thought it was helpful to say a few more words about mindfulness in general. As Oren was suggesting, the essence of mindfulness is to be able to know and stay with the, what we call the object or the focus of the mindfulness. To be able to know it, know that we're knowing it, and have some ability to stay with it. So those are the two aspects that Oren was talking about, the connecting with the object and the staying with it. Really the two fundamental aspects. There's a passage from a, a text from the uh, Buddhist psychology called the Abhidhamma, which brings out these, these uh, points. This is a quotation, I think from probably 1,500 years ago. As a mental factor, mindfulness signifies presence of mind, attentiveness to the present. It has the characteristic of not wobbling, not floating away from the object. Its function is absence of confusion or non-forgetfulness. Another way to look about, at mindfulness that I like a lot comes from Achan Cha, the uh, great uh, 
teacher in the Thai forest tradition, who, like I mentioned the first evening, I was privileged to study with for some time. And uh, he had a beautiful metaphor. He said that mindfulness is uh, like a net. We catch things and we look at them before we become reactive about them. He used another metaphor. It's like a gatekeeper. That we notice essentially before things proliferate. So mindfulness in the text often has that sense. It's, it's protective in a way. Right? It protects us from our conditioned mind going off on old reactive patterns. Does everyone know something about the conditioned mind going off on old reactive patterns? <laughs> yeah, it's... Again, we don't put it in the promotional literature, but that's a lot of what we look at. <laughs> So, Sylvia Borstein says, mindfulness is the aware, balanced acceptance or the, the aware, balanced opening to or receiving the present moment, pleasant or unpleasant, just as it is, without either clinging to it or rejecting it. Mindfulness has both an active and a receptive dimension. The active dimension is to know what's happening. It's the mind to say, okay, maybe to ask what's happening and to know what's happening. That's more active. We have to bring the mind to our experience. But there's also a receptive aspect where we uh, really let whatever we're focusing on, the breath, bodily experience, we in a sense more receive it. We don't try to control it, we let it be there and we open to it. So there's, so we can each ask in our practice, am I emphasizing more the active or the receptive? Do I need to make an adjustment and sort of let the uh, focus just be there more in my experience without trying to do too much of the active dimension of labeling it, focusing and so forth. Maybe last thing to say is that mindfulness is connected with wisdom. And it's really the whole aim. The whole aim of the practice is to see clearly over and over again. And in the course of that, we notice the kind of tendencies of mind that may lead to suffering. And we notice uh, the tendencies that may be more skillful, again, to connect with a lot of what Oren was saying. And I find generally that there are three ways we can be mindful. A lot of it depends on the level of attention. First, we can really just note that something's here. Okay, this is present. You know, we're with the breath and thoughts come and we just notice planning. A second way that we can practice mindfulness is to be present with something that has more duration. Maybe an emotion is there as we were exploring this morning, has more duration, it lasts. You know, maybe there's some irritation or sadness or um, happiness. And we, it lasts for a while and we can explore it. We can bring in what we call the factor of inquiry or investigation. And, and just to really say, okay, what's it like in the body? What's it like? What's the storyline? What's the emotional energy like? And to really explore. And then a third way that we're mindful is that we can start to see patterns. We can start to see when this happens, that happens. When my mind goes here, some of it's more personal. When my mind goes there, it tends to trigger this, right? We start to see some larger patterns, some of them more personal, some of them more uh, universal, having to do with what leads to suffering, uh, how things change and so forth. So the second foundation of mindfulness, it's 
there are four ways that we're mindful, actually. And again, it's, it's interesting. The instructions are not uh, just be mindful. It's not what it says. It doesn't say just be mindful, folks. Bye. <laughs> Buddha didn't say that. He said, be mindful in four main ways. These are the four foundations of mindfulness. He said, be mindful here. Be mindful here. Be mindful there. And we've explored some of the ways that we're mindful. We started with mindfulness of the body, which would include the breath. And we introduced, at least in an initial way, mindfulness of uh, thoughts and emotions. And those are kind of more obvious, right? If you're going to pay attention to your experience, you'd want to pay attention to the body, thoughts and emotions. In, in kind of the Western psychology over the last 2,500 years, those are taken to be the three main parts of experience. So it would kind of be commonsensical that we would look at uh, those areas. And so here comes the second foundation of mindfulness says, look at what we call the feeling tone, the sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And look carefully at that. On first hearing, you might wonder, why are we focusing unpleasant? You know, the, like I say, the other ones look a little more obvious, but I, I hope partly uh, this evening to let you see why it's so crucial. In fact, could, could say that really being attentive to um, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, Vedana in the Pali language, gets at the core of the teaching in some ways more directly than the other foundations. That's part of what I want to show. And that it's a really crucial part of practice that we may not have focused on so much and can be very, very illuminating and powerful, both in retreat and in daily life. So the first foundation, mindfulness of the body. Second, mindfulness of feeling tone. Third foundation, in, in the Pali, it's mindfulness of citta. Uh, generally, we would translate that into Western languages as something like thoughts and emotions. And then the fourth foundation, I like to think of the first three as looking at the constituents of experience and the fourth as looking at certain patterns of experience. And those are explored through a number of the core frameworks of uh, practice, like the Four Noble Truths and others. So Vedana, in a lot of the translations, is translated as feeling, which um, can be problematic because in English, I think, I think uh, in the dictionary, there are 14 different meanings for feelings. And so feeling not only means sensation of the body, but it also means emotion and also means thought. So it's like vague, <laughs> right? And so feeling tone is a little more precise because the feeling tone, what we're looking at in the second foundation is not emotion. And so I, I find the word feeling can be a little uh, misleading. And that sense of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral applies to all parts of experience. So it could be relating to uh, bodily experiences or uh, mental experiences or emotions. Or it could also be, there could be a pleasant or unpleasant quality of uh, an interaction with someone else. All sorts, all sorts of things will have, every experience typically will have a, a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral quality. In the teachings, the pointing to feeling tone appears three times. It, it appears in this um, foundation of mindfulness text. It also appears in the teachings on the aggregates, which is the core constituents of experience. So it would be body, uh, feeling tone, perception, uh, 
sort of mental uh, mental habits and material and then uh, consciousness. And so it appears on that list, sort of the constituents of experience. And it also appears in the very fundamental teaching, which I'll go into some in a moment, called the teaching of dependent origination or dependent arising, which is the teaching that the Buddha came to on the evening of his awakening. But let me read the let me read the text from the foundations of mindfulness. How practitioners does a practitioner abide contemplating feeling tones as feeling tones? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling tone, a practitioner understands I feel a pleasant feeling tone. When feeling a painful feeling tone, one understands I feel a painful feeling tone, or we would say unpleasant. When feeling a neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone, one understands I feel a neither painful nor pleasant feeling tone. One abides contemplating in feeling tones also their arising factors or their vanishing factors or one applies contemplating both their arising and vanishing. So how they start and how they are impermanent and eventually pass away. We'll come back to that. The teaching of dependent origination is probably uh, the teaching where we can most clearly see the power of paying attention to pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And it's a complex teaching, and we could give a whole talk about it, and we might do that later in the retreat. So I'm going to give a, what? A pared-down discussion. I, I, I found my mind saying cliff's notes. Okay, but... but uh, Essentially, the teaching of dependent, dependent origination has three parts. The first is what we bring to experience. The second part is what happens in experience. And the third part is what the consequences of what happens are. And the focus of the teaching is going to be on the second part, what happens in experience. And so in the model of dependent origination, the emphasis particularly is on how, if we are not awake, we bring uh, a certain kind of ignorance, which is not an ignorance of facts, but a kind of spiritual ignorance. We don't know our deep nature. We don't know our minds well. We bring that ignorance and then a number of hab habitual tendencies which flow from that ignorance. And we bring that to experience along with other things, but especially focused on is that. And then, um, and then we have this, uh, uh, we have several factors that are identified which tell us what happens in experience. We bring our, you know, we bring our habits, our tendencies, the way we make mental constructs of different things, all very uh, large, largely unconscious. One uh, neuroscientist once said, the brain does not like consciousness. <laughs> it likes habits. likes everything to be ordered, don't have to think about it, and so forth. You know, like we all have just tons of habits. I was noticing, like, um, just a few days ago, I noticed, I was thinking about this, and I noticed I always start to shave on the left side of my face. And if I would start to shave on the right side of my face, it would feel really weird. I probably could do it. And we, our whole of our life is ordered that way. You know, we, what? brush our teeth in a certain way, we do this, we probably by this point have routines for the dining hall, right? For, you know, anyway, that is, <laughs> we bring all these habits and routines. And so what happens in experience? This is really where the teaching of Vedana is most central. There really are just four steps that are described. First is, 
we have contact with what would be called an object. We have a thought, sensation, something occurs in experience. We have, we are all of our, our mind, our senses, we meet experience in a certain way. That's called contact. You know, it might be that we, we see something. We see, uh, I see the tanka at the end of the hall back there. You know, I have contact with an object. The teaching is then, with every contact with an object whatsoever, there is a feeling tone. There's a sense of it either being pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Probably about, I think I've heard some researchers say, as much as 98% of our experience is relatively neutral. We're all interested in that 2%. <laughs> the pleasant and the unpleasant, right? You know, we sort of don't, don't focus too much, but every object that we encounter in experience, which is really every moment of experience, has a feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. We're going to want to actually pay attention to that, to notice when that's there. I'll come back towards the end and give a number of practices that we can work with that help us explore this. In the teaching, what happens when we're not mindful, I think I was talking about this the other night, when we're not mindful with a pleasant experience or a pleasant feeling tone, I should say, we tend to want something from that object and we tend to grasp. So I'm not mindful. I eat something that I like, it has a pleasant sensation, and I notice myself quickly, whatever, the fork goes for more, right? Because I, I want it. So four steps, contact, feeling tone, in this case wanting with the pleasant, and then grasping. With the unpleasant feeling tone, when we're not mindful, contact, unpleasant feeling tone, aversion, not wanting, and then pushing away. So the last step is we, we might say the action. And then with the neutral feeling tone, when we're not mindful, we're more or less spacing out, not really aware. We don't do anything, right? And so in the teaching, the last part, the third part, the consequences are essentially that we just keep our habits going. You know, I won't go so much into that, but it's essentially we keep the habits going and in a sense we reinforce our habits and our underlying ignorance because we're not seeing clearly. One uh, teacher of Tibetan practice, some of you may know uh, Reggie Ray, who teaches in Colorado, he says that the whole of spiritual practice occurs between contact and grasping. Because what we try to do is we try to see clearly the whole process. And of course, that's, that's a schematic model. When we actually would look at a real experience, it would get a little more complex. Because what really happened, what, you know, the, the model is simple. What actually happens is there's an unpleasant feeling tone and we may just start proliferating reactions. You know, I'm sitting here and I uh, find that my uh, mind is not so settled or concentrated. I don't like it. It's kind of unpleasant. And I start into aversion, which could lead to half an hour of self-judgment. 
that's this model, right? Something happens I don't like because not liking is very close to that sense of it being unpleasant, right? And so we can have that sense of, or I like something, it's pleasant, and I may proliferate. Maybe I have a really, what we, uh, the technical term that we use in uh, retreats is that we have a good sitting. <laughs> One of those good sittings, the legendary good sittings. I have a good sitting, maybe I'm doing metta, and I, the metta is really flowing, pleasant, and I just start proliferating thoughts which are kind of organized by grasping. Maybe I should do meta the rest of the retreat. Meta is so cool. <laughs> you know, let me, um, yeah, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can read one of those books I bought, brought here about meta. Cool. You know, I can, yeah, maybe I'll do meta for the next two years. And again, in itself, not entirely a problem, right? I mean, some aspiration there, which could be good, but there's a kind of grasping. And the, the, the basic sign is kind of proliferation and reactivity, right? Uh, in large part, because we haven't noticed the pleasant or unpleasant. So a lot of our practice will be coming back to notice the pleasant or unpleasant. And when we don't notice it, it often is the starting point for a cycle of reactivity, which can last quite some time, as we know. And we actually, I'll come back towards the end and say we actually sometimes can go in the reverse uh, direction. We notice ourselves being reactive, grasping, pushing away. And we sometimes can say, what's there beneath that reactivity, is there something pleasant or unpleasant? And sometimes we can actually touch the pleasant or unpleasant, stay with it, and the reactivity will start to dry up. I'll come back to that as, a, as one way to practice. Very interesting. And maybe, maybe I'll, give, I'll give some examples of that. Um, one, from, one from my own experience. Actually, more from daily life. Uh, I was once in a role where I was meeting with the person who was the director of the organization. I was meeting like in a small committee every two weeks. And this person who was leader, many of us thought, uh, didn't listen so well. And, and uh, I agreed with that. And, and so I'd be in this meeting and I would say something like, you know, uh, let's do this. And my sense was that it really wouldn't be received and he would sort of change the subject. And what I noticed in myself initially was that I would pretty quickly have a reaction. And I would find myself a little while later in what I later came to call a place of emotionally distanced moral superiority. In other words, I was quite judgmental. <laughs> which, which was, at the time, comforting. <laughs> and the... Um, pattern continued. And I was actually working with a mentor and we said, let's study this. And of course I started noticing because my sense was I wasn't feeling heard, whatever language, which is, you know, in, in some sense, most of us, what we most want in life is to be seen and heard. So I can say it in different language, but something like that. And it was not happening. And and I came to see that this was actually a really uh, significant issue in other parts of my life. I could see other times when I didn't feel that there'd be a reaction, right? And, and then I, I won't ask for a show of hands as to who can relate to that, but I think it's a lot, right? And so uh, when we did the work, it was interesting because I tried to study the process from the beginning. And, I, and eventually, 
I found, I, I tried to be mindful. So I would actually go to the meetings and I would do like walking meditation on the way to the public transportation and, you know, really try to be very present and aware and be there in the meetings. And I tried when, if something like this happened, I tried to study it in the moment. And what I came to find over time was that if I could actually be aware in the moment when I thought he's not listening to me, I could feel oh, there's something in my heart doesn't feel good, something painful. And that when I could actually touch the pain and feel that, sometimes I could feel my tendencies almost starting to react and proliferate, but they weren't happening, but they're almost like starting. And eventually I could feel the pain and really feel that and notice it and the proliferation would not happen. And I could actually be there present and somewhat non-reactively say, you know, that point I just made is important to me. I'd like us to come back to it. Something like that. So it's interesting that, and so it's actually, I'll come back again. It's a way to practice sometimes to, when we're finding ourselves reactive, to see, find ways to actually sometimes touch the pleasant or the unpleasant. And when we touch that, it actually, we, something can um, dry up with the uh, reactivity. Because you see that the teaching is that if we are actually mindful of the pleasant and unpleasant, we can notice the tendencies towards that reactivity and catch it before it gets too big. That's, so it's, you can see how it's right at the heart. You can understand that statement. It's at the heart of the practice. You can understand why he said it's the whole of the spiritual practice is in this interval between contact and grasping or pushing away. I, I found some other people who said something very much like this. This is from Carl Jung, the, the psychologist. That which we don't really, this is a paraphrase, that which we don't deal with in ourselves, we tend to project out onto the world where we encounter it as demonic. That's with the negative. And this is from uh, James Baldwin. I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hates so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. It's a profound statement, right? But what it's pointing to is just how much of all the proliferation in our own minds and in the world comes out of some kind of pain or some kind of wanting. And so if we can actually attend to it before it gets too big, before it proliferates, it's a very powerful uh, way to practice. You know, another way to talk about this can go back to what I mentioned, the teaching of the two arrows. Remember that from like about you know, three or four weeks ago? <laughs> Remember the teaching of the two arrows? Basically, we have an unpleasant experience and if we're not aware, we'll, that's the first arrow, we'll tend to shoot a second arrow, which is the reactivity, as if that would help. Sometimes we could distinguish and call the first arrow pain and the second arrow suffering. Some people use that language. So the aim is not to end the unpleasant, but it's the aim is to end the reactivity. It's to not shoot the second arrow. First arrow is a given. And you know, I, was, uh, I go every year to uh, teach in uh, North Carolina and Kentucky. And in, I was in Kentucky a few years ago. Um, probably doing some teaching on the two arrows because it's like my, almost my favorite teaching. Right. And uh, someone came up and she was a hospice nurse. And she said that she had someone she was working with or maybe had worked with who was a double amputee. And at the foot of her bed 
she had a sign and it said, pain is a given, suffering is an option. That's the teaching. That's what we're looking for. Sometimes things are unpleasant, but once, sometimes things are pleasant, but we have our practice can really help us with what comes after that. So it's so, so central. One of the interesting things about the experience of pleasant or unpleasant is that the sense of what each of us find pleasant or unpleasant isn't directly connected with whatever we're experiencing. In other words, the, it's a, the sense of unpleasant or, or pleasant is subjective. We see that really obviously with food, right? Some people find um, one food tasty, pleasant, others don't, right? And um, I know one of my initial experiences doing retreats was how with a concentrated mind, cold broccoli brought ecstasy. You know, that, that, it was amazing because normally it wouldn't. <laughs> but it was like the experience of the concentrated mind uh, lent a certain pleasure. Or another experience I remember, which really shows how uh, uh, pleasant feeling tone, I think we would say, or unpleasant feeling tone is not dependent solely, it's not dependent on the object. Uh, when I was in my 20s, I lived in a lot of uh, group houses or collective houses. And in one of them, I remember, we, ha we had a woman from Iraq. who had, I think she had been in the U.S. for a while, but she was, had been born in Iraq. And often on Saturday nights, she made uh, all-you-can-eat baklava. Pleasant, pleasant story so far? <laughs> but it was really interesting with all you could eat baklava. <laughs> First piece of baklava. Very, very pleasant. Second piece of baklava. Pretty pleasant, still pretty pleasant. Third piece of baklava, starting to edge towards the neutral. <laughs> and you know where this is going. <laughs> Fourth piece of baklava, decidedly into the unpleasant. Right, so. So it changes, right? So, and. Uh, It's very much what we bring to the experience or our history or our preferences, you know, cultural, whatever. One of the points that's really crucial is that it's not the pleasant, for example, that is the problem. It's the reactivity that follows it. And in fact, in the text, of the Buddha, pleasure had a very important role in meditation. Yeah. And he, you know, at a very uh, key time in his development, he remembered the pleasure of concentration that he had experienced as a child under a rose apple tree. And he had been on a, a path, really, of uh, asceticism, in which there was an attempt to avoid all the pleasant. And part of what he came to, which we, he came to call the middle way, 
says pleasure is not the problem. Pleasure can be a, an important asset in our practice. The pleasure of the contented mind, the pleasure of the body sometimes with uh, PT or the, uh, we sometimes translate as rapture in the body when the mind is very peaceful and settled, can be very important. Uh, experience is not the enemy. You know? I had a group once and we were exploring that teaching. I said, pleasure is not the enemy. We could sit here next time and eat chocolate the whole night and it wouldn't necessarily be a problem. So they said, they said let's do it. <laughs> we did and they, they could explore that. <laughs> and so similarly with the unpleasant that we can, uh, we can explore it. Again, the Buddha was following an ascetic path where sometimes the unpleasant was seen as a way to mortify the body. And he came to say that the unpleasant in itself is not necessarily a good thing. We don't reject pleasure and we don't sort of make a cult of the unpleasant. But we really try to see each of them as they are. And again, the, the point of the teaching, the point of this entire pointer is to say, when you look carefully at pleasant or unpleasant, you can, and study it, you can see at times the tendencies towards reactivity. And then with the mindfulness, one can choose not to go there. So it's crucial. The neutral is actually harder to investigate. And it can be a very interesting practice to study the neutral. The neutral quality of the experience. Um, how can we attend, you know, we can attend to it. Let me just study how my mind sees this as neutral. In the text it was said that there were two ways that we do this. One, where there might be an issue or a problem, where the neutral simply means it's not really pleasant and not unpleasant, I'm not really interested, it's bland. And that can be still connected with uh, ignorance. And he said there was another kind of neutral which came more out of equanimity. So it's kind of different dimensions of neutral. That with equanimity, we're just not so pulled. And we probably know this, things which really pulled us five years ago or 10 years ago don't pull us in the same way now. There's a little more balance with them. And so we can, we can also study the neutral, because again, the neutral, when there's not mindfulness, tends to lead to spacing out or delusion. The Buddha said that studying the feeling tone is central for liberation. He said that one should make an end to suffering without abandoning the underlying tendencies of desire for pleasant feelings, aversion towards unpleasant ones and ignorance towards neutral ones. This is impossible. That one should make an end to suffering by abandoning these tendencies this is possible. So again, it's not the pleasant or the unpleasant, it's what we do with it. It's the reactions, the proliferations. So a few practices to suggest how to work with this, some concrete practices. Uh, and one of the really interesting things about working to look at pleasant and unpleasant and neutral is that it really can bring out what we call the factor of inquiry or investigation, which brings a lot of interest and curiosity. You know, so, oh, I've never really looked carefully at pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Wow, look at that, look how that's happening. Anyone who, ha who feels or thinks you have your practice is rote or getting a little stagnant or dull, we like to bring in the factor of inquiry. 
look carefully. Look carefully at pleasant or unpleasant, how it works. It's, it, it's amazing, right? I mean, in a sense, the, so much of what organizes life in our own minds and socially, culturally, could be seen in terms of pleasant, unpleasant, reactivity, or not paying attention to the neutral. Okay, so a few ways to practice. One is to, maybe for a given sitting, could be during, for a day, have the intention to look for when there's a strongly pleasant experience or a strongly unpleasant experience. In other words, have your radar out for a somewhat, you know, somewhat moderate or strong pleasant or unpleasant feeling and then bring your mindfulness in. It might not happen so much, but really have your intention to do that. So, of course, a natural place to do, to start with this, would be to look for, look at Vedana in the dining hall. When you're eating. It's not making the pleasant unpleasant, but it's actually, it actually could be fascinating. What, what happens in the dining hall? So again, first practice, look out, set your radar for when pleasant or unpleasant is you know, somewhat strong. When that's happening, stay with the experience of the pleasant. What's it like in the body? What's going on? Maybe the pleasant lasts for a while. What is the experience of the pleasant like? Maybe we've never looked at that in our lives. What's the experience of the unpleasant like? What's it feel like at the level of the body, the mind, on a particular experience of pleasant or unpleasant? You know, where are you most experiencing it? Mind, body, heart? You could also study neutral feeling tones, maybe for a sitting or for maybe a short period of time, maybe for three minutes or five minutes. Just say, I'm going to really look at what's neutral. Maybe like, you know, like I'm sitting here right now. If I bring awareness to the sensations in my upper body, somewhat neutral. And by the way, neutral doesn't have to be 100% in the middle. I don't know, 100% in the middle. That doesn't make sense. But. <laughs> It doesn't have to be exactly in the middle, that's what I meant. Okay. It doesn't have to be exactly in the middle. We sometimes say that the feeling tone runs the spectrum from agony to ecstasy. Right? And for a neutral feeling tone, kind of somewhere in the middle area. It doesn't have to be exactly in the middle. So another way would be to take a period and look at neutral feeling tone. Again, could be for three minutes, four minutes. In, in a related way, very interesting practice is take a short amount of time, like three minutes, and just say, I'm going to watch whatever feeling tone is predominant every moment for the next three minutes. That's really interesting. So, again, you can even try it a little bit right now. You know, what's coming to your mind? And again, it's probably not going to be too much, too pleasant or too unpleasant, but if I do that right now, I notice, oh, I feel some pressure sitting right here, a little bit unpleasant. Warmth, kind of pleasant. Just looked at the Buddha back there, pleasant, and so forth. So you can just do that, you know, notice each moment like that. Can be very illuminating, very, very interesting. Another way to practice with feeling tone is to periodically check in, what's my mood right now? What's the feeling tone generally in my practice? What's my mood? Can do that two or three times during a sitting or walking. You know, and then there's the practice I was mentioning, which, which is kind of a segue 
to what we'll explore tomorrow with the third foundation of mindfulness, which is working with thoughts and emotions, we can take a difficult mind state, like my example with my boss of being really judgmental. And sometimes we can, there are ways that we can practice, such as me, I was, I was in a situation where there were some repetitive things happening, so I could say, I'm gonna look out if he doesn't listen again and just see what it feels like. It was also important for me to act, but I was especially interested in doing the internal work. And I would look and in the situations as previously had just left me, you know, I was gone. I was off in being reactive. Uh, I could actually notice sometimes, oh, that didn't feel good. Let me just tune out. And I almost wanted to look for that moment of it not feeling good. And when I did that, I, I could notice the tendencies to reactivity and I could also, as I mentioned, it could somewhat dry up. When I, the reactivity would dry up when I really was with kind of the pain of not feeling heard, which, you know, had to, had to be with. And I, I, I work a lot, as some of you know, on issues of the judgmental mind. I'm working on a book on that now. And uh, I use a practice a lot when sometimes there's a judgmental mind. And you can, one can use it with repetitive thoughts. I call it, this is, I really learned it first from John Travis. It's a practice that we call the dropping down practice. And it's a way of moving from repetitive thinking into the body. And so, for example, if I find myself being really judgmental, let's say, that kind of mind state of myself or someone else. And I notice that and I'm in a pretty relatively, you know, relatively quiet mind. What I can do is actually move the awareness down to my heart area and feel just whatever's there, maybe for two minutes or something. And some of us have pretty good awareness of the body and some of us, there's a lot of learning to do to have more access to the body. But what I sometimes would find, I did this for, I did this month at a two month retreat, at this retreat, like quite a while ago. And I uh, did this, um, whenever there was a judgmental thought. I also, at the end of a sitting, I would sit and I would deliberately bring up a judgment which had been around in the last period of time, let it be in my mind for a minute, and then bring the awareness down to the heart area with a light focus and just see what, you know, see what happened. And I, so I started doing it like <clears throat> maybe 10 to 20 times a day, probably more than that, maybe 20 times a day. And originally not much happened. I just felt my body, <laughs> right? But after a while, something, I don't know, it was like maybe developing neural pathways or something. After a while, because I was most, for me, what was mostly happening was self-judgment. That's what I was working with. And what I found after a while was I, um, <clears throat> I started to feel that there was some pain there or some sadness or some grief started to touch it. I remember a really key moment happened. It was probably in February and I was on the lunch line. It was raining and the lunch line was moving really, really slowly. And I uh, thought correctly, this is probably a day for tacos. A lot of condiments, right? And I started judging the kitchen people should arrange the condiments differently so we can move through the line more quickly. Right? Being judgmental. And I had been doing this dropping down practice for a while and I was having some results and I started doing it a certain time. It said, do that dropping down practice, Donald. Okay. And then I, I did it and I just felt my heart area and I felt, oh, impatience. We can call that a kind of unpleasant experience. Impatience, I hung out with the impatience like for 15 seconds and all the judgments dried up. 
that the impatience, which I was really not noticing, was triggering reactivity, triggering a whole train of thoughts, right? And so I was actually able to go and it's kind of the reverse order. Our main practice is really to notice the pleasant or unpleasant, watch the tendency to reactivity. You can also do it in reverse order. It's interesting. And it's a little harder and take takes some practice. And that particular practice, um, please be patient with it if that <clears throat> resonates. I did it probably quite a few hundred times before there were any results. Okay? Some people have quicker results than me. Okay. But it's, the, the, it's really seeing this link between the pleasant and the unpleasant especially and reactivity. And one can actually study it in different ways. So that was very, very interesting. I think it can help sometimes if also when we're studying this a lot, and maybe especially if we're studying more of the unpleasant, to do, to hold it with compassion and metta. Maybe to do some of that practice as well. That can be, that can be helpful. And I think also maybe last, last kind of practice, if we notice the pleasant or unpleasant and start noticing tendencies to reactivity, it's very helpful to appreciate the freedom that's there when we're mindful and where I don't have to go to the reactivity because I can feel the tendencies and my wisdom can say, let's not go there. Again, it's the freedom that's opened up by our practice. So to close, um, two readings, two short readings, one from the Buddha, really describing the maturation of this practice. Desirable things do not provoke one's mind. Towards the undesired, one has no aversion. And then to repeat the instructions from the text on the foundations of mindfulness. And how does a practitioner abide contemplating feeling tone as feeling tone? Here, when feeling a pleasant feeling tone, a practitioner understands I feel a pleasant feeling tone. When feeling an unpleasant feeling tone, one understands I feel an unpleasant feeling tone. When feeling a neutral feeling tone, one understands, I feel a neutral feeling tone. So you can see, in a sense, the simplicity of the practice, really. We've been emphasizing that a little bit. It's simple, you know. This practice is quite simple. Look for the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, especially maybe the pleasant or unpleasant, and notice what happens when it's there, whether it tends to proliferate. And in doing so, one gains increasing freedom. I'll bring out tomorrow morning um, some of the instructions again. And just to repeat, but if you want to start working with it, um, if it resonated, then by all means do that. But we'll continue with the uh, tomorrow morning especially and bring it out into uh, instructions for the day. Again, thank you for your kind attention. And you know what comes next. And and again, we'll have the, the chanting at nine, and uh, just quite a sweet way to end the day. So please come if you have energy. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.